Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into the mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, joining you in this moment so we can remember together that real wisdom is dangerous, but it's the direct, unconventional path to success and the good life for all. Dangerous wisdom can heal us and the world at the same time. Today we have a very special visitor, my good friend Leah Friedwoman. Leah is a delightful person and a very accomplished person as well. Leah was born and raised on unceded Pawtucket land in Lowell, Massachusetts. She obtained her master's degree in clinical psychology from Riviere University and worked as an in-home therapist before psychedelics turned her world inside out. She is now a psychedelic integration facilitator, a trainee in restorative and transformative approaches to conflict, and the host of a podcast called The Psychedologist, Consciousness Positive Radio. I love that. The dominant culture marginalizes consciousness, and Leah embraces consciousness and its many possibilities. I encourage you to give her work a listen. It's good nutriment for the soul. Leah holds her permaculture design certification from Starhawk's Earth Activist Training, a program that emphasizes social permaculture and spirituality in activism. You can find Leah teetering on a slack line in Costa Rica, covered in dirt from working the garden, or with her nose in her laptop, grading papers for her psychology students. You can learn more about Leah at thepsychedologist.com. That's all one word thepsychedologist.com. Leah, welcome to Dangerous Wisdom. It's great to be here, Nikos. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Yeah, lovely introduction for lovely being. And tell us, if you would, how, how did you get into the business of the soul, the psyche? My Lord, the calling to the psyche. <laughs> how did this happen? You know, I think I was initiated really young. People always said, you're such a little psychologist. And I would say, yeah, but I didn't really know what that was. And then in high school and college, when I did study psychology, I was pretty sure that that was not what I was because it was very boring and soulless. <laughs> and it felt like kind of a letdown. I thought, I thought I'd be learning I don't know, not necessarily about myself, but I'd be like initiated into this clan of, of people who, you know, liked to talk until the sun came up, looking at the stars with people and talk about our dreams and our wishes and our fears. But, um, you know, Psych 101 is just kind of more about the founding fathers of psychology and no offense, but all these white, older white men that weren't, didn't feel very relevant to me. So, yeah, my entryway was a little bit, um, you know, hitting, hitting the edges, bouncing back into the center, confused. Um, but I doubled down in grad school and just learned, learned to be a good little psychologist, as the world would want me to be. Uh, and when I started working in the field, it just felt really mismatched to think that the world was wrong. So I thought I was wrong. And, uh, and then like, yeah, like the bio said, when I started taking psychedelics, I found 
uh, a world of wisdom within myself alone. And uh, it was through exploring that that I came to um, helping other people in the way that I feel called to do. Um, feel very lucky to have found something that's needed, something that I'm good at. I'm able to hone skills in and be effective and something that can support me as a source of income, um, something I can offer for free for, for to those for whom it's not possible to pay and something that uh, like makes me feel energized, really. Like it's not always energizing, but it, ultimately it's, it is, it confers energy when we're doing something that's aligned with maybe our, maybe you would say our soul's purpose. I don't know. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's really interesting uh, because also I think people in philosophy have this experience. They go to major in philosophy mm -hmm. because they think it's going to be about wisdom and the big questions and what is the nature of reality. And then you start to find out that it's not, they're not going to let you do that. And um, there can be some frustration. And I, I would say, you know, this is part of the kinship I feel with psychologists because Jung, as we talked about, Jung, he felt this. He said, you know, we're just philosophers. But, you know, philosophy in the university doesn't look anything like this. And so none of us feel comfortable saying that. And mm -hmm. I think maybe the, you know, what you experienced is that psychology as a discipline kept going in that direction of the academy and looking less like what Jung thought a real philosophy and psychology look like. Hmm. I missed the end of what you said, and then the computer said, my internet is unstable. Oh, see, well, that's fascinating. It's unstable. I wonder, is Mercury still retrograde? Here we are, it's Chinese New Year. That's exciting. So there's new energies. And then my old friend, Hermes, he might... He might be having a good time with us. Yeah. Well, I was just, I guess really maybe uh, I was noting how this resonance happened that in the universities, our therapists are looking more like uh, other people in the discipline rather than looking more like the ancient philosophers that Jung thought w would be the appropriate model. And they were, of course, interested in exploring the psyche in, in a much richer way. Uh, and so... Those those ancient um, patriarchs, in a good way, like they, you know, whatever that we can kind of pardon them a little bit, but they were sort of helpful to bring psychology to us as we now have it. So for you now, you said what what you said was well, what I saw as the image of the psychologist didn't look right. You used that phrase; it didn't look like me. So what does a psychologist look like? Maybe you could you just say that. Well, that. <laughs> you know, that's the origin story of my podcast and my website, The Psychedologist, was <clears throat> depending on what state you're in, you can be a psychologist or go into another state and you're no longer a psychologist because it depends on if you're licensed or if you have a PhD. And uh -huh. so I thought that that was kind of silly. And so I thought, well, if, if, if what I will be will vary based on where I am, why don't I make something up that's I can be that wherever I am because no one can say I'm not that because I made it up. So, <laughs> so I can't tell you what a psychologist looks like, but I can say that I am a psychedologist and there's, there are others of them as well, right? It's like psychedelic 
uh, you would know, maybe, you know, this, or maybe some listeners know, um, mind manifesting is the Greek words that are yeah in there or soul, soul manifesting mm. because psyche, but yes, you go, please. Go right. On. Yeah. Even better, even better. Um, so maybe that is the apex of philosophy and psychology is psychology, like soul mind manifesting in the study of what it is to be human. Uh, and I, I value research and statistics and, um, you know, and I also recognize that a lot of modern psychology has been built on studies that don't actually replicate when we redo them. And, you know, we're subject to ethnocentrism and all kinds of bias in our studies. So uh, I, I, I think I, I, I look at what I know with humbleness and others should do the same. And, and our direct experience is valuable. I think this is part of my flavor of psychology or psychology or whatever. It's like, I'm most interested in what you mean to yourself. Uh-huh. That's interesting. What you mean to yourself. Do, do you think we should also ask though, what, what do you mean to the community of life? Because they, Maybe they're, they're you, what you mean to yourself. Like if I ask Jeff Bezos what he means to himself, it sounds very grand. But then if I go interview the whales and the dolphins and the horses and the fish, they say, oh, that guy, we, we can't even begin to tell you what we think. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's the journey, I think. Like, can we actually meaningfully answer who we are without looking at our interrelatedness with all of these beings and entities and forces and minerals and the water. Yeah. I like, I like this idea of um, that you did what some philosophers have said it can be an important thing with psychedelics is that it suddenly reveals to you just how vast and wondrous and magical the psyche is because we don't have any direct experience of that. And then you had this experience, and it was it must have just been like, a, I don't know, like a real shock to the ordinary paradigm, maybe. I don't, I don't know. Can you talk a little bit about that? About what it was like when I first journeyed with psychedelics? Yeah, because there was this was apparently revelatory for you. You know, it was like you're going down a certain path. And it's interesting, because for me, it was going back to the old roots, the mystics, but we had this similar parallel projector in that I said, "Well, I'm going to invent a job because I'm not a I don't not, I don't count as a philosopher in the academy anymore." So so now I say that I'm a consulting philosopher and that it doesn't didn't really exist because no one thinks of going to a philosopher to consult. You know, like, well, wait, what do you mean? I say, yes, I'm a consult like Sherlock Holmes was a consulting detective. So we both <laughs> invented this thing. And they're both very interested, you know, your track and my track are both very interested in mind and soul, how they really manifest and what it means, what the, what are they, and can we look to, at them and learn from them. But I'm just wondering if, you know, what, so what was the experience of, for you, go, you were going along and then, okay, I don't really know that I fit in this thing called psychology as a discipline as I see it, and then I took this medicine and then what, what did you say to yourself then <laughs> to go in a different direction? Like what, what was the, I don't know if that's the right way to ask the question. Mm. Well, I think it's right. And I don't know if it'll be the right answer, but I think it will be amusing. <laughs> so I, I was really stuck. And the reason that I took psychedelics was to impress a guy 
Um, which indeed, that's why I know so many neighborhoods of where I'm from. It was like dating a guy that lived there, learn about, you know, that's why I speak Portuguese and Spanish. Um, not, not super fluently either, but well enough to, to get by for sure. It's like, I've learned so much through, um, shaping myself to be a partner to someone, usually a man. Um, I've had a few female partners, but, uh, at that time in my life, I was dating, a my first psychonaut partner and he was a Vipassana meditator still is. And he's a dear friend. Hi, Greg. Um, <laughs> and he, uh, yeah, he would do high dose mushroom journeys. And he said it was very serious work and part of his, his being a good person and part of his spiritual practice. And I, you know, I had been through grad school by that point, And I remember being like, that's a little weird. I think that's a little weird. Like, okay. I was a little scared by it. I didn't totally understand it. But then after he and I broke up, I was kind of like, wouldn't he be impressed if I went and drank ayahuasca? Like he said, he wasn't ready to drink ayahuasca. Well, bitch, I'm going to go drink ayahuasca. Why don't you look at this? Look at this. (laughs) Yeah. So of course, grandmother ayahuasca is like, oh, so that's why you're here. Okay. Come have a seat. (laughs) You better lie down actually. (laughs) So, um, you know, I have a, I have a strong mind and to this day, I, I don't know if it's biological at this point, cause I'm a lot more flexible now, but, um, I, I require pretty high doses of psychedelics, like higher than anybody else I know actually to get to what I think are the places other people are in. So I drank, uh, two cups and didn't really feel anything, just felt a little buzzy. That was it. And then I drank a third cup and the facilitator told me it's just a little slide. That's what she said. It's just a little slide. And it hadn't occurred to me that I was afraid to like slide in or, you know, to descend. Um, and I think I ended up drinking a fourth cup as well. And all I remember is lying down. Um, there was like this little tiny, you know, I didn't know any of these things yet, like Hinduism. I didn't know about um, deities, but there was like this little golden dancing Indian looking statue, but alive thing that I was seeing in the corner of my eye. I remember that. And I remember seeing these bulbous sort of ethereal organ looking like looking like a spleen and a lung and um, but not human. And they were these uh, glowing colors, like light purple kind of uh, alien colors, green. And they were, they were bulbous and um, uh, kind of pulsating alive. And it was, it was like, really weird and a little bit scary. And I felt kind of sick and I was like, well, I did that, you know, that's not for me, but my best friend had come down with me. Um, she actually had been dealing with feeling suicidal and I hadn't known. And when I told her, I'm going to go drink ayahuasca, she said, I'll come with you. Like I've been wanting to kill myself. This is just what I need. It's like, Oh my God. All right, let's go. And so we were on this journey together. So it was she who said, let's go back and drink ayahuasca one more time. And we came back. And uh, they had a special ceremony just because we came back. So it was a really small group. Pa- they passed around a joint of cannabis because they are Santo Daime-ish people and smoking marijuana is like part of ceremony in that tradition sometimes. And it just helped me like lift off. And I had, I had a much more um, 
ecstatic and transpersonal and and mystical experience that time. And so then then that was like the courtship of psychedelics were like winning my my favor, my um my trust and yeah, and courting me and showing me like look, this could be really this could be really good. Do you want to trust this? Look, see, you can trust it. Uh and I didn't even trust myself at the time. So can, can I jump forward to one year later and tell you a really great story that sort of leads to where I am today? Please do. Okay. Um, so I drank ayahuasca a number of times that year and volunteered at the center and I was helping people in their journeys by the, by the end of my stay there. Um, I came back a year later to do like a vision quest type thing that this, that this circle held where you go into nature in isolation for four days but you would be drinking ayahuasca during the day and sitting in your clearing alone. And I was going through a really difficult time of it. And I was ready to leave. And I was like, Oh, they're not going to let me leave. Cause I'm on this freaking drug. And like, this is a cult and I have to sober up so that they'll let me leave. And so I was like, sober up, sober up, sober up. And then they would bang the drum when it was time to drink more and everyone would come out of their clearing and line up and, and drink ayahuasca. And uh, I heard the drum and I felt myself standing up and I was like, oh no, I'm in, I'm one of them. I'm in the cult now. Here I go marching in line, getting in line. And of course you all wear white. So it's just like even worse. Um, and for my poor, my poor paranoid brain uh, and the facilitator gave me the cup and I drank it. When I got back to my clearing, I had this experience of, you know, I had seen those organelles, those bulbous things the first time. And I'd also noticed at times that my head would turn. It was like my head wanted to turn sort of upwards and in, in a certain direction many times that I would drink. And it was like a very curious thing, kind of turn on its own. Uh, I'd also feel this like heaviness drop in my hands. My hands would drop to the ground. And this was like on the dirt. We were, you know, in Costa Rica outside. So my hands would drop to the dirt and kind of feel like a magnet was pulling my hands down into the ground, almost like a force, like a, a extra gravitational force. Uh, and then another thing I'd sometimes see was like myself m- moving down this channel of light, like, like a, yeah, just moving down a channel. Oh, and lastly, I, I was sitting in the clearing now. So those were all common experiences I'd had that I didn't understand. And I yawned and I felt as though my whole body was covered in mouths that were yawning with these big teeth and just like, oh, big yawn everywhere, breathing. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm breathing through all of my skin. That's so insane. And then I realized this is what plant consciousness is like. All of these things, my head turning to the light, like can't turn away from it, got to turn towards it. Roots growing, like my hands rooting down and, and moving into the soil, um, the organelles are like nutrients and water moving up and down the stalk of a plant and the plant breathes through the leaves and you know, different parts of the, of the body of the plant. And it just kind of, <laughs> it kind of knocked me out. And I woke up doing like snow angels in the dirt, just like smearing dirt on myself, like orgasmically, like, Oh, just making love to the soil. Um, and to that day, my entire life, I hated having dirt on me or sand, just anything like, Oh, I got to wash it off. got to go for a swim. Like I hated dirt. And after that, I just didn't have that, that fear anymore. It was like my, my initiation into the earth family of, of plant beings. And the medicines do speak to me, I think in, in, in non-human ways. And that I'm, 
I'm just honored when I can understand. Hmm. That's very powerful. It was, it's a little resonant with uh, Stan Groff's experience too. You know, he saw Shiva the first time. Do you know about his kind of initiation into psychedelia? I don't know that I do. Okay. No, I don't know. So for those of you who don't know, for those of you who do, press fast forward now. I will very briefly <laughs> recount that Groff was, he was uh, he was going to be an artist. He, was, I, he wanted to be an animator and then it was like the day before he was going to go off to the to the animation school and and somebody they were having a party and somebody came and said hey you got to read this book and it was freud's introductory lectures on psychoanalysis he stayed up all night reading it and he said i've got to i want to know the mind i've got to study this so he goes through the whole thing gets an md goes through analysis and it's like years of analysis he's doing and then his advisor says, well, I'm going to, I've gotten this uh, thing from Sandoz Laboratories that I want to try. And Groff had heard a little bit about it. It was LSD, of course. He was uh, sending it to psychologists, psychiatrists, and saying maybe you could learn something from this. So Stan Groff volunteered to be in the part of the study. And uh, the, it was kind of an intense first experience because his uh, advisor had the idea of trying to entrain the brain waves. And so relate to drive. So they were using stroboscopes to get you into different, you know, into who knows what states. But he had this really, really big experience that he thought was, okay, I've been in analysis for this whole time now, my whole residency and so on, and my specialization. And this did more in eight hours than I did in all those months. So it really changed the course of his life. But one of the things he saw was the dancing Shiva. And that was like for him getting that taste of that there's you you that Jung was right about an objective psyche you know that there is like if this is here and I've got no connection to it why why would it appear to me you know it's absolutely not anything that was in his world and so yeah it's really beautiful so then you were having this kind of experience of being maybe introduced to plant consciousness uh, or or like it's interesting. Did you feel that it was Aya t telling you what her experience was like, or did what? Do, how do you? How did you understand what the, what the, the soul was sort of experiencing? Mm. My clients ask me, sort of like, how does it work? Like, is are the mushrooms actually telling me this, or uh -huh. you know, or like, is the change in my brain allowing me to see this? And it sounds like a message, and uh -huh. I don't think I'll ever really know, but that felt there's been a few messages lots of visions um yeah and a few messages and that message did feel deliberately conveyed for me uh -huh. um as a communication but i don't know yeah this puts us in that realm that uh, that the last time we had a dialogue, this is just part of the thing that's interesting to me as a philosopher, is that how, what is it that we can do to train people to get better at receiving the messages right with clarity and that, you know, and then you, you, we're also then better able to take it the way the other explorers in other cultures have done. They've been kind of like, uh, they call the culture's conscience and say, this is what I'm being told and you need to listen because... This is coming from this larger mind that we all are or share or however you want to look at it. But it's very interesting that this is, um, that in most of these other cultures where there, it, where there are people who have this job of receiving these messages and then conveying it so the community can use it, that they usually need a lot of training. 
and they need you know very very specific kinds of training for their how to use their mind and body and it's kind of seems like that's part of maybe where we're at right now. How can we give people better and better training so that they're able to um, get the visions that we need in order to carry the culture forward? Yeah, right. Well, something that comes to mind for me is that the importance of isolation for being able to to receive messages. Yeah. Um, I just diverted a sneeze. So. I noticed. Yeah, that was very skillful. That was, <laughs> yeah, it's solitude, right? We need enough because these people, like we think they were crazy, these yogis going up in the high mountain caves, but they understood that there was a need to hear. How do you hear the earth if you're there's so, so much noise? And that's even back then. Like I sometimes, when you read descriptions of philosophers, say in the 1100s or 1200s, talking about how, how busy <laughs> everything is, and I think, what would they even what would they think if they saw New York City, these people who were like, oh, this life is crazy. <laughs> a thousand years ago, yeah. Yeah, it's really crazy. Yeah. And how do we, because we don't know how to be alone. You know, that's what Buddha, there's this d discourse where this fellow, see the gold standard for, you could say, knowing. How do you know something? Well, in Buddhist philosophy, you go into nature and you sit there quietly and you wait. And, you know, essentially, she's going to reveal everything. You're going to see the nature of yourself and this whole reality. But the problem was then, if that was the gold standard, there's this very famous uh, discourse where everybody's worried about this one fellow who keeps going off by himself, but they can see it's it's really not a very good idea for him. And so Buddha says, well, bring him here. And he says, now, what are you doing? And he said, well, you know, you always say we have to go off by ourselves. All these other monks, they get all the street cred, right, for going off by themselves. So I, that's what I'm doing. And he said, well, you silly person, when you go, you're not alone. You go off alone, but you're not alone. You're, you take everything with you, your parents, your culture, all these ideas, all these voices are in your head, and you're not going to be able to hear anything until you understand what it means to be alone. And then, of course, your realization will be that you're never alone, in a way. Mm -hmm. But you've now been experienced your interwovenness, and now you can hear what the world wants to say, rather than all the yeah, 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 yeah stuff that we're doing when we go out there. Mm, right. Yeah. Well, and then I think that brings me to the difference between being alone and intentional solitude because right. a lot of us are, are alone very alone now and not by choice and we might even be surrounded by people but it's it's alone um in its own right so yeah i i you know i've been befriending my body these last few years especially this last year i've made some incredible strides and progress and uh, you know, there's even a, a microbiome in my gut that's m less human than, you know, like I, my body is not all human. And so in, in a sense, I've always got that with me as well. I have my nervous system, my respiratory system, digestion, uh, my immune system, all of it working. And I hope we can all work together. You know, we don't always work together, but there's there's that to contend as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, culture, modern culture is not trauma informed. Like, for instance, if someone is in a car accident and they're shaking, you know, people might come and put put a blanket on them and like, oh, you're shaking, poor thing. 
but it's actually a really natural response. And if you encounter someone who's been through an acute trauma and they're shaking, if you can give them the space to safely let their body shake out and discharge that energy, then it won't get stuck. It won't be so likely to get stuck and it's not a guarantee. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think that there's th- this microcosm of this larger society. Like you said, they'd look at us now, you know, people a thousand years ago would look now. I mean, we'd look insane. We would look sick. Um, and we are, and this, the sickness lives within and without. And, but I'm reminded of a teaching from Dr. Sherry Mitchell, the people of the first light, her, her nation is the, the easternmost um, folks on, on Turtle Island, this North American continent. And uh, she said, we talk about generational trauma, but there's also this generational love and support that we all kind of survived to this point due to having been cared for and nurtured, you know, as well as facing hardship and sometimes abuse. Yeah, that's a really good thing to recognize. It's uh, It brings to mind a little bit the, the Tibetan culture really tries to emphasize this uh, vision in seeing each person that you meet and recognizing that they have been your mother. That's a wonderful ideal. You know, I think that's a really lovely. I tried to write this piece of fiction where when people would encounter each other, if you if you met a stranger, you would refer to them as mother. What didn't matter what their biology or gender was, you would you would you would be, it's a way of respect. Where if you, it was an elder, you would say mother. You would call them mother. And that is to recognize this. You know that there's no matter what, no matter how bad our mothers were, there's this like inescapable energy of compassion that still allowed us to be born and and survive you know even if it was really uh, difficult in so many ways but it's like this element of care is always trying to get through yeah care and creation yeah hmm. and so now the the psychedelics. You be, I like what you were saying about trust because that is one of the immeasurables. If you if you use the little expanded, there are these things in Buddhist philosophy called the immeasurables. There are traditionally four of them, but then I I invite people to think there are six because the whole point of any tradition of love wisdom is really to be able to trust thoroughly, to trust ourselves and the world at the same time. Because if we only trust ourselves, we're trying to control everything. Um, and if we only trust the world, then we're acting like we don't have any engagement with it, right? So it's this razor's edge of really deeply trusting and knowing that there's a mystery. And so you were finding out that the world is trustworthy. That's an amazing thing, that experience where you thought you could, hey, I can trust this plant, which is a weird thing, right, for a human being <laughs> in this culture to think, you know, because we have this species loneliness, as you know, as people have, you know, good critics have, have referred to it as, and that's part of the indigenous critique of the dominant culture is, hey, you people are like living without your kin, and they have so much to teach you. And so what a weird thing. What did you, I mean, were you at all astonished, or did you just go with it when, when you realized, wait a second, I trusted, and it was a plant, that I trusted, and I learned something from, or with at least, you know, again, it could all be endogenous mm-hmm. in some mystical way, but you, I learned something from a plant, and you were, you had been in school. What's that weird? <laughs> Wait, I just learned a bunch of stuff from a plant, it was better than a lot of my psychology courses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
reflect mm. on any of that, my friend. I'm just, you know, <laughs> I'm touching the wonder of this uh, story. Mm. I love how we talk. Um, well, it was a resource. It was, you know, sometimes psychedelics create, or any experience can create an access point for a feeling state or a mental state. And even though sometimes I couldn't contrive or like generate a sense of trust, I could tune into that frequency by remembering what it felt like to, uh, to receive such a gift of this communication of like, it's like, Hey, like your consciousness is such a big deal to you. Like, why don't you try on this other consciousness? Um, Just like, yeah, I'm thinking about the eye of the spider, like spider visions, like so many different eyes, so many different vantage points. And that's what any given moment is like times a million. Um, And that's just sight. My God. So it was, it was a, a dissolution, I think, of, of what I thought, and yet not ungrounding at all, like actually grounding the mystery, like you said, the razor's edge. Yeah, that's marvelous. That This is, of course, the ego's fear is that it will be ungrounding. That's what holds back sometimes. I mean, I know what you mean. I don't know if, if there is just in part resistance that some people have through their own psychological patternings. Or if it's if there could be something, as you said, biological to the fact of needing a lot of medicine in order to get to these places. And it's also, there is this thing, I usually say that I find it typically suspicious if somebody seems too excited about, I'm going to, you know, take this psychedelic and because I, I want to see all the reality, I want to see it. And I think really there's a part of us that is inevitably afraid that what what we'll see and what it might mean for the rest of our life because it might mean something we don't really that the ego has no interest in and so that means that it's going to actively try to control some of these experiences and try to keep us from seeing something uh you know more expansive because we could feel overwhelmed yeah 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 the nervous system works in a similar way you know, our, our nervous systems are identical to those of any other mammal, any, you know, even perhaps, no, I don't think it's all vertebrates. I'm not sure, but at first, for sure mammals. And uh, so once you've been caught by the predator, there's a certain point that you won't feel pain anymore because of this dissociative response and the kappa opioid system, you can get high on your own supply. Uh, it's good shit. Um, and the, so while, while the ego can try to protect us and I've been getting into parts work, uh, internal family systems, it's a, a model for therapy recently. And, um, you know, in, in that, in that, uh, lens, we, we are this, we are true self, like self essence, like who we are, um, at the core and then we have all these parts that form from life experiences to try to protect hurt parts. And those are our, our managers, our protectors, firefighters, and they're trying to keep our exiles safe. So for instance, if I have an abandonment wound, then um, that's like a really painful area. And when it seems like I might be being abandoned, my protector part shows up and says, fuck me. No, fuck you. Uh, and like maybe makes a big, you know, 
a big drama uh, to to push someone away who might abandon me. And it's and they're all trying to help, right? The ego is trying to help, and uh, so uh, I like to. I've been liking looking at these. Yeah, the nervous system. Like when I dissociate, when when I'm feeling under pressure and I start to get floaty and I'm like not in touch with my emotions anymore, my body feels far away. Um, it can be really frustrating. It can be quite disrupting. Uh, I don't want to lose contact with my body. It, it gives me information that I need, but that is my nervous system trying to help me to help me to stay safe from what it perceives might be so intense that it could hurt me to fully feel it. Um, so I thank my nervous system and I honor the wisdom of it. And then I try to slowly correct the, these processes so that, um, like, no, actually it's okay. Like, I, I can, I can feel this. I can feel this right now and, and build the capacity for that. Same with the protector. Like, no, you don't need to push this person away right now. I'm feeling hurt and vulnerable and I can feel this. Um, and same with the ego, right? Like, yeah, the ego tells me that I need to be the most important person that everybody needs to like me all of the time. And if they don't like me, that's, there's something wrong with them. <laughs> Because it's scared to think that, like, maybe there is something wrong with me. And then I'll be abandoned. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is interesting, isn't it? Because we're having to deal with um, the the culture that takes advantage of the soul's concern that there is something wrong with it. Like, so, mm -hmm. like you know, we're, we're just told, essentially, to ignore when the soul says okay, no, I'm not sure you should be doing this. And then we, we, we sort of empower it in favor of the dominant culture by saying, oh, see, that's just imposter syndrome. You should just keep going. Or that's just you feeling self-doubt because the culture, rather than saying, well, wait, but maybe the soul knows I'm kind of too ignorant to do the thing that I'm trying to do right now. And I need to listen to some something deeper because I might be taking the wrong step. And how do we do that without creating this Again, that's the skill. There's a razor's edge. Not going into self-doubt and self-criticism where we beat ourselves up and become un unable to act, but also recognizing, well, maybe I do need more pausing than I want <laughs> because I have to just admit, maybe I don't quite have the center of gravity for the, the endeavor and I haven't seen some unintended consequence of it. Yeah. Yeah, I think... It's like they say, if you don't have time to meditate for an hour a day, then meditate for two. <laughs> That's right? like, cute. Yeah, right. If yeah. I feel like I can't slow down right now, well, I really better slow down now then. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting, you know, what you were saying about the parts also, there's, it's not the... It's not the only set of traditions I draw from, but I, there's a lot of resonance, of course, with... Um, Buddhist psychology, because it, it's such a sophisticated uh, psychology. But did, did we ever talk about Machi Glabrun, the Tibetan philosopher? Yeah, she's wonderful. And she developed, um, this is a thousand years ago, and she developed a way of working with the uh, these currents of the psyche as, um, I mean, if you looked at it, you would think it it, it looks remarkably like uh, internal family systems or something, but it's got this amplified thing because it's from Buddhist philosophy. So what the way she talks about it is internal gods and demons. And for her, a, a demon is anything that obstructs liberation. So mm. yes, it might have been helpful, you know, in a certain limited way in our life before, but now you're aware that it's obstructing 
liberation. And so what she does is a very, very exceptional and imaginative process. She, you ask that part to have to appear with a face, whatever. Just like, can you just reveal yourself in a personified way? And uh, you essentially uh, turn through this process. It's called feeding your demons. Is the way it's been popularized by a very, very exceptional person uh, named Soltra Malioni. And so she kind of modernized it into a, a, a simple process, and it's easy to to work with. But um, through this, you not only liberate that energy, but you actually make it into an ally. So you you essentially say, okay, yeah, you I understand you were trying to help me. Now let's see what you actually need, and how can you become now my ally? So that when I need to call on you, it's kind of like you were saying, if I lose trust, I can call on this experience. And so it's a similar way, our lack of trust demon that says, you know, you suck and all this, we change that into the, oh, self-confidence ally. It's a very uh, rich imaginative process that she uses where you feed these demons, you know, you actually give them the nourishment that they're so desperate for. So let me ask about your... So the, the, when you're working with people, do you still do conventional kinds of therapy, or is it mainly that you are working with people who want to work with psychedelics? Mm. Um, I really, I just wanted to say I loved what you shared just there, and it's really cool to see that that is in Buddhism as well. It makes a lot of sense. Um, I do a lot of different things. I support people in a number of ways. One of them, the one therapy that I do do, because I don't call myself a therapist and, um, you know, I would need more supervision and um, like, yeah, I was trained in that direction, but I didn't complete the requirements for licensure. And you don't need to do that in Massachusetts, but I've chosen to identify as a space holder and a coach instead. Mm -hmm. Um a coach because people can kind of understand what that is. And coaching is, it can look a lot like therapy. Like I think that I'd have the same tools in my tool belt if I was acting as a conventional therapist. Um, but it's more goal directed and a coach can't diagnose or treat mental disorders. Um, which, which works well for me because I am sort of moving away from the, the diagnostic system anyway. Mm-hmm. But the one modality I do practice that's therapy is psychedelic somatic interactional therapy, which uh, actually works with cannabis as the, the most potent medicine for catalyzing that process. Um, and it's a, it's intended to work on the nervous system and the body. So it's not based, it's, it's not about insight. Uh, and it's not about cosmic experience. Actually, if there's a cosmic experience happening, we would direct the attention right back to the body. Um, and the point is to pressurize the system to allow material that hasn't been uh, fully felt or processed by the nervous system to bubble up to the surface, because it's the theory is that it's always there waiting to bubble up to the surface. That's why even when there's really, I'm not going to be abandoned right now, um, but my partner can, you know, raise an eyebrow a certain way and I'm all of a sudden ready to be left alone. Um, and, and I'm not going to have it. So, um, so you basically put the pressure on and that that's a psychological, emotional, relational example, but it could be a physical one as well. Um, that, uh, perhaps someone was assaulted and they were so frozen and that they couldn't, they couldn't try to push the person away. So even a response of the hands coming up 
and slowly doing this pushing motion can happen uh, in this modality, uh, which, which cannabis sort of facilitates and, and uh, expedites the process. So that's, that's a really cool thing. One thing that I do, um, and it's especially helpful for dissociation, which I mentioned dissociation as a super wise evolutionary mechanism of our nervous systems. And yet anyone who's very dissociated will say, you know, they, they actually want to step outside of that and feel what there is to feel. So um, with PSIT, this is the acronym, um, we would focus on the dissociative symptom, however it showed up, like could be tingling or a floaty feeling, a sense of being cold, feeling disconnected. So as the coach or as the therapist, I would say, okay, let's stay with that. You know, can you just let yourself get as disconnected as you need to feel right now? Like, let's go, um, let's get be curious about this disconnection and let it get as big as it needs to. And uh, it's kind of, you know, it as a loving and caring person, it can be hard to encourage people to stay with things that are painful. Um, but ultimately the, the opportunity is that that can get so big that it actually completes itself and it's not needed by the system anymore. Um, and it's helped me feel, it's helped me feel so much this practice. So that's, that's one thing that I do as well. Mm. Now is the cannabis working at all like MDMA works in obviously not in that extreme, but in that direction of pacifying the mind enough that it feels less freaked out as the material bubbles up, so to speak, like I'm a little bit more relaxed about it or no. I wouldn't say, I think that that could be a, um, a secondary benefit or effect for some people, but, um, actually like the, the cannabis is what makes it feel less comfortable. And, you know, folks who experience paranoia on cannabis or, you know, they get muscle tension. My teacher, Saj Razvi would say that they're actually, the cannabis is working in a medicinal way by bringing this material right up to the forefront. The person just isn't in the setting or the set or doesn't have the intention to be working with that material. They, you know, they want to enjoy the concert or whatever, um, not like process, um, feeling unsafe, but, um, so yeah, so the the way that it actually works is to as kind of like a an agitator right. of that that nervous system material that's layers upon layers of protection keeping keep because our nervous system doesn't want to forget all the dangers that we've been in. Um, it wants to as soon as you smell vanilla, you know, beat it, get out of there because it's not safe. Whatever the association is of, of safety or unsafety with things, the yeah. nervous system wants to log it all. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. It's very interesting because this is part of what people find in meditation is, you know, people will say, oh, meditation, I can't do it because it makes me anxious. It's just revealing that there's anxiety there. Yeah. And and the soul usually says, oh, well, if you're going to sit down and pay attention, here's something that I where we've been really wanting you to look at. And then the question is whether you have the tools. So there too, I bet, you know, I don't know if you've experimented with it, but compassion training is so powerful for giving us the capacity to look at something difficult. It really verifies. And in general, we need that. I mean, there's just this, that's what some of the old school initiations in indigenous societies were about too, is really letting a person verify their capacity to do something uncomfortable. And um, because that builds trust in yourself, but also trust in the community, because they feel that you know your capacity to withstand discomfort, whereas, you know, 
I think all of us are afraid that the person down the street is going to give up, right? On when we just when we need them, you know, like that's the part of the sort of thing because the culture doesn't teach us our capacities. So then we we're always looking at each other, not knowing. I mean, do you know your capacities? I don't know mine. I think I might chicken out. You, I don't, you know. <laughs> and when we do these things, we're really we're we're helping all beings by you know discovering. I just I'm really acknowledging what you're saying is that boy it can feel really uncomfortable to watch someone suffering and and yet we have to t know our own capacity to work with difficult situations and if something's in us what do you want to do pretend it's not i mean <laughs> right right well and the system needs to feel safe enough to let those things come up or else you're just in a tug of war so there's also like in in knowing our capacity and expanding it, there's, there's a lot of um, uh, need and benefit from resourcing the system as well. Like, yeah, I'm thinking this is a sharp right turn here, but like BDSM, you know, there's a lot of healing possible in um, domination, submission, play, insects. Uh, and you, it's like, kind of paradoxical, but you need to be safe while you're going to those like feeling unsafe places in order for it to like a not be traumatizing and b to go as deep as, as is possible to go at that time and is safe to go. Um, in time massage, my teacher, my former teacher said, there is never too deep, only too fast. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Interesting. Right. Yeah. And that's the reason, too, why in some of these spiritual traditions, there's a lot of what are called preliminary practices. There's this like kind of earning the capacity to look deeper and deeper into reality in the ways that the ego doesn't want to do. So the, I mean, some, some of this is elaborate and it can take years of doing all these sorts of things that are very unlikely to instigate a, a profound mystical experience. They're just, it's, it could happen, sure, but that's not usually what, you know, when you have to do 100,000 prostrations just to receive the next teaching, you know, there's probably nothing much will happen there, but it's sort of, it, it is this thing of, oh my gosh, you know, look what I did. <laughs> the ego kind of gets this sense that like, well, I guess I can do more than I thought. And then you're also, the nature of it, the orientation is decentering the the, the ordinary self-cherishing for this larger truth you know so the act of prostrating is also going to do something to the ego again and again it's it's wait i'm bowing down to something what is it it's is it me no it's not well what that's really interesting so let me ask you then what do you see as the relationship between psyche and earth you know so you also have this permaculture dimension and it must be interesting. And then you've experienced plant consciousness in a certain way. Who knows? We, we don't have to say, what does it all mean there? It's, it was a mystery, something powerful. What do you see the relationship there? Between, did you say psyche and earth? Yeah, why not? <laughs> <laughs> Well, the first thing I noticed that came up when you asked that was a feeling of guilt that I haven't been thinking about my psyche, my soul's connection to the earth recently too, too much. I make sure to get outside. Um, I used to live in the suburbs um, 
in Lowell, Massachusetts, um, in the neighborhood where there's a lot of mansions because that's where the mill owners set up their ho- their homes on this big hill, looking down at what's now the downtown area with all the mills where all of these immigrants from Ireland and Scotland and Italy and China and other places were, you know, like doing unbelievable labor to dig canals and women working in these factories, 14 hours a day, six days a week, church all day on the seventh. Um, But anyway, so it's like, it it was a place with a lot of maybe uh, a lineage of kind of like pain and exploitation and exploitation of the land as well as people. Right. Um, But when I would walk, I, I think I might've been had, have recently had a mushroom trip and the trees sort of told me or whatever. um, It's really good. If you look at us and just appreciate us, like it's really good to walk around and just appreciate the trees. Um, It was, it was like a a nod, a strong nod from nature, like good, good. So, so I like to, to do that, go outside and, and just plainly appreciate, um, the plants, the trees, the mushrooms. So, yeah, I mean, just thinking about yesterday, I had a meltdown feeling I was feeling powerless. And like, I I realized like all the things that were bothering me, it came down to, I don't make a difference. That's what I kept like kind of arriving at. I don't make a difference. I I can't make a difference. I've tried to, and I don't. Um, And right. If I'm, if my consciousness just includes like me as this solitary entity that's supposed to halt like massive forces um, or, or, or transmute, like, you know, it's, it's a tall order. I can't actually do that alone. Like I need my, my plant allies and it's not me doing anything alone. It's all of us in like kind of, yeah, in this relationship. So a roundabout way of saying I don't think you can take one away from the other. And yet I believe many of us don't even know that they're both there and how so there they both are. It's like, like my, my heart is beating every single time. I don't think about breathing a lot and I breathe. I'm not concentrating on gravity holding me. It just does. My body holds, my consciousness is contained in this body and in, in some ways in the space around me as well. And there's many consciousnesses here. Um, so I think, yeah, I think there's a big, there's like a, a huge connection that um, maybe the sadder or more powerless I feel the further I am from recognizing that connection. And yet nature is so generous that whenever I'm ready to take a look at it, it will just be right there for me, you know, again, every time here I am. Mm. Yeah. 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 It's, it's so interesting to think about the limits that we have to understanding of mind in the dominant culture and that, uh, yeah, it's much more mysterious in a way. I mean, obviously it's, we can even be very precise in the sciences and define mind in a way that does not confine it to a bag of skin or a skull inside of a bag of skin. <laughs> So we were trying to locate, and even sometimes we have the naive sense that there's that there's a soul in here somewhere, whereas maybe it's that the body's in the soul, 
that we got things backwards. It's not that the soul's in the body somewhere, but that this thing we mm-hmm. refer to as the body is just something that's an aspect of the soul. But you, mm-hmm. you, that's interesting what you're saying about how the culture not really sensing that, that um, it, it's the thing that, that Gregory Bateson said, that the major problems in the world are a result of the difference between the way human beings think on the one hand and the way nature actually works on the other. And so we're sort of doing this thinking by ourselves and we don't realize that the larger psyche is is the natural world, is the community of life. And there's somehow a way to know with them. And maybe the plant teachers, that's part of what they help us to do, right? You know, that we it helps us to know with that larger mind. Right. So do you work, help people then who might be preparing for working with psychedelic medicines and then also integrating the experience after? That's part of your work, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yep, preparation, um, integration. Sometimes it's bridging gaps between family members and loved ones where one is like interested in psychedelics or is already benefiting. And, um, you know, I can understand that uh, it's, you know, people have been given all different kinds of ideas about psychedelics, like both on a pedestal and uh, demonized. So sometimes I help with that as well. I'm currently um, doing a little bit of training and teaching community members to hold space for each other in a peer capacity, um, because I think it's important that uh, if anyone's journeying, they also have the opportunity to support another person's journey, because a lot of learning can come from that as well. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, Stan Groff did that with the holotropic breathing. You know, there's a person right. who was doing, yeah, that's really, uh, do you see any trends? You know, like sometimes I think it's interesting if a Jungian therapist who they're sometimes very interested in dreams and so they'll start to look at and they'll say, you know, there seems some interesting patterns in dreams that different people are sharing with me. Do you notice any patterns in psychedelic experience that, I, I don't know, seem important in any way? Hmm. Hmm. Of course. I'm just trying to think of what what to share here. Uh, okay, well, a really common one is, and I'll, I'll tell a story about myself that's in contrast to this in a kind of cool way. A common experience is like, I'm not alone. Like, I've never been alone. Um, you know, we are all one, like it's all one thing. People, it's a lot of people want that experience. And what's unfortunate is it tends to come when you don't expect it and you're trying to work on like something totally else. Um, but that's a big resource too. that one of um, the, the singularity and the interconnectedness. When I did 5-MeO DMT, which I've only done one time, I was working on codependency with my partner. And in my experience, I I actually blacked out for the first time in my life. I've never, I've never blacked out except that time. And I sort of came to, and there's a, a couple of different things happening. But what, what I want to share here is I had this impulse to reach out to my partner because I knew he was sitting right beside me. And if I just reached out my hand, I'd like make contact with him. And, you know, it was just like, as I came to, I was like, oh, I want to do that. And as soon as the impulse to reach out came through, 
I had this feeling of like the deliciousness of just being me, like one me separate from everything. And it was like, ah, I actually felt my aloneness in the most delightful way. I took such pleasure and refuge and, and like, I never wanted to lose that feeling of just how good it was to, to not be connected to anyone or anything. Um, so I, I, yeah, it's an interesting one. And, th- and that's been an access point for me too, when I'm feeling, um, lonely or, uh, you know, troubled, no one understands me. I don't make a difference. I could probably even use it for that. I don't make a difference. It's just like, I don't need to make a difference. Like I can just, I can feel the boundaries of myself right now. And, and it's all contained within myself. That was part of it too. Like everything's right here. I don't need to reach over there because it's right here. Mm. sort of the the hologram <laughs> right the whole the whole thing is in the part in a way <laughs> yeah. yeah okay yeah that is that's really delightful so that's is as interesting is that if we really do hold a question deeply enough then it can come and sometimes it's not where we're looking as you say it's it's like oh you think you're doing something else but then the answer comes because we've held the question with enough care Exactly. Uh-huh. I, I, um, I express it like holding a baby bird, you know, you need to have structure enough that it won't fall out of your hands, but also you're not squeezing it. it like it needs to have room to move. And it, it's it like that, or like taking a puppy for a walk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's delightful stuff. Well, I think there w- there would be so many more things that I, I, we could talk about, but I think this is this is a good place to to leave that image of taking care of the questions of the soul like a little bird, and not crushing them, but but, but making sure that they have that support. That's a way to practice deeply with the biggest questions of our life, and then maybe we need teachers, traditions, and even non-human teachers, plant teachers, who can help us to answer those questions. And then we need people like you, the psychodologist, who help us to prepare and also to integrate afterwards. So thank you for your work, Leah. Oh, um, honored. Thank you. And that was such a beautiful wrap-up. I, I appreciate your skill with, with the spoken word. Well, thank you. Yeah. It's very kind of you. And thank all of you for tuning in and listening to these matters of soul. They are the first in a series. They have more to come, my friends, and it's going to keep getting better. We're going to have an interview with uh, Rick Strassman of DMT Research fame, and then we'll have some philosophical reflections and a kind of, I think, some philosophical guidance for working with these powerful medicines and also just working with our lives, how that's really part of one holistic philosophy of life. So do turn tune in to those. And in the meantime, if you have questions, reflections, stories of magic and mystery to share, maybe related to psychedelics, holotropic medicine, plant teachers, but anything at all, Anything of wisdom and wonder, compassion and courage, creativity and insight, do get in touch through dangerouswisdom.org and we might be able to bring some of those stories and reflections and questions into future contemplations. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.